Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. So lately I've been doing all these episodes on schema therapy, and I'm finding that it's really interesting and helpful to think about uh, personality and our own issues and our history in uh, through the lens of schema therapy. And I've been hearing from a lot of listeners that they really enjoy schema therapy and have been applying the model to themselves and finding that it's a very, very helpful way of understanding our own issues. And it provides a way of understanding that and also a way to get out of the sort of repetitive loops that our personality gets into. And, uh, as a part of that, I've been trying to flesh out my understanding of schemas by actually talking to people and interviewing them about their schemas and how their schemas manifest. How do they maladaptively cope with their schemas? How have they healed from their, from their schemas? And this provides the kind of real life examples that really flesh out a model. You know, it's one thing to read about it and, it's a whole other thing to actually see it in its application. And so some people have been actually coming on the show and uh, being interviewed by me. We did some episodes with Bob. We did one with Umberto. We did one with uh, Christy. And now we have Tara on the podcast to do it as well. She volunteered. She's a listener. And she volunteered to um, be a, a part of this discovery of you know, what do the schemas actually look like? Welcome to the podcast, Tara. Thank you, Kirk. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I am 43. I'm married. I have three kids. I run a corporation with my husband. I'm in therapy. I'm not a clinician. So I'm coming at this from that side of things and just something that really sound interesting. And your therapist approved of you being on the podcast, correct? Correct. Yes. I talked to him about it and then we talked about it again, but no, he was good with it. So yeah, if, if you want to listen to the previous episodes on schema therapy, which I, I think to be extremely useful, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. And actually this episode with Tara is also going to be only for patrons of the podcast. So this episode, if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, you have to become a patron by going to patreon.com. And when you go there, you become a patron of this podcast and you get instructions on how to access all the episodes on schema therapy, which um, I'm personally finding to be extremely useful. So become a patron today. All right. Welcome to the patron zone, everyone. All right, Tara, so I don't know how you want to do this exactly, but uh, the way I've been doing it, uh, I think I might adjust a little bit, but um, I think a way to do it with you is since you've already worked your way through the questionnaire and you've given this some thought, maybe just telling me and the listeners what schemas seem to really stick out for you, which which ones uh, seem to be an issue for you. I did take some notes. Um, the first one was that you talked about was abandonment and stability. And that one was definitely an issue. Okay. So let's dive into that. What do you, what do you say? Sure. 
So this is the first schema, and uh, by the schema therapy people, they call it abandonment instability. I'm calling it people are undependable schema. So I've reworded some of these, and let me know uh, uh, if you agree with any of these in general. Sure. Um, I worry that people I feel close to will leave me or abandon me. Yes. Uh, I find myself clinging to people I'm close to because I'm afraid they're going to leave me. No. I find that I lack a stable emotional support from other people. Yes. I expect close relationships to end. Yes. I sometimes feel like I'm addicted to people who get close to me. No. I sometimes drive people away with my clinginess. No. Uh, Sometimes I avoid close relationships to avoid the fear of being disappointed. Yes. Close relationships are unpredictable and that they will suddenly switch from being interested in me to not being there for me. Uh, No. If I express my true feelings, people will leave me. Yes. Okay. So as I'm going through this, I'm realizing that maybe there are two different types here that I, that I hear sometimes. Um, and I'm going to just take notes because this is kind of the reason why I'm doing it on some level is to, sure. to walk. So myself. yeah, right. Like I'm not a clingy person. Right. So there's like the non, I'm just going to, as I'm, I'll probably clean this up later, but there's the non clingy type. And then there's the clingy type mm-hmm. right. <laughs> uh, for people who are, um, you know, have this schema. So let's go back to the beginning. What were your early childhood or throughout your childhood experiences that led you to develop the schema that people are undependable? Um, so, you know, I'm not totally positive um, where that comes from, like in my childhood necessarily. Um, I grew up uh, upper Midwest, you know, small town America. I have three siblings. I was number three. Um, you know, my mom stayed home, uh, until, I don't know, I was like sixth, seventh grade. Then she went back, she was a teacher. She went back to work. Um, I think I just, uh, I, I had a lot of anxiety and I know one of the, like when you talked about some of the beginning stuff with Bob and Umberto, you talked about validation of feelings. And I, that kind of, I think, stuck with me because I was anxious as a kid. And so what does a three or four year old do when they're anxious? Um, They cry. And I was always just told that I was too sensitive, um, you know, or, you know, that I was made fun of kind of by my family at times for that. So, well, that'll do it. Yeah. Right. So you're two years old, you're five years old, you're eight years old, and you're experiencing some kind of distressing emotion. Mm-hmm. And you're also too young to really understand what the emotion is. And yeah. you're too young to process it on your own. And if your parents were raised better themselves, they would have had the uh, know-how or the capacity to be attuned to you in that moment, meaning that they would notice you having an emotional experience based on your behavior, probably before you even started to cry. But at the very least, when you start to cry, they'd be like, oh, my kid is crying. Uh, 
what's going on with them right now? So they would, they would, they would come to you and they would be non-anxious themselves. Because a lot of parents, they will invalidate their kids' feelings because they're anxious. They don't know what to do. Um, so that might have been the case. But anyway, they, they would come up to you and they would say, um, okay, Tara, I, you know, uh, I'm guessing you're a little scared about this or that, or, or if they were confused, they'd just be like, you know, they'd, they'd crouch down to your level and they'd say like, what's going on? Like, how are you feeling? And in the moment you, you might be like, I don't know. And you know, what attuned parents will do will be like, well, it sounds like you're really suffering from something. Would you like a hug? And you might be like, yeah, I want a hug. And then they'd hug you and then you'd feel a little better. And the parents would walk away going, well, that was weird. I wonder what that was about. But that's what attunement means. It's non-anxious. It's non-critical. They notice, they respond, um, they take the time. uh, And it's, and your parents didn't do that, not because they're evil or, but because they were either raised in a very similar way or they, and, or they had their own emotional reaction that really stressed them out in the moment and they didn't know how to deal with it because their parents weren't there to uh, take care of them and help them with their emotions. Is this or any of it true? Yeah. So both of my parents had very different upbringings, but I would consider both of them dysfunctional. Um, My mother was, grew up in poverty. Her father was an alcoholic. Um, and she's got some pretty horrible stories. Uh, and then my dad's family was, you know, a little bit more, I wouldn't say wealthy, but upper middle class. Um, but just, yeah, I don't think much emotional support. Like at one point he had a nanny just for him, but he had an older sister and a younger sister. And so, I mean, I don't have all those details, but that's enough to me to just be like, that. that's kind of strange. Right. And do you, uh, the way I described the attunement versus the non-attunement parenting, did that also ring true for you? Yes. Yeah. So um, I think sometimes I, you know, I mean, there were four of us in seven years between the youngest and the oldest. So, I mean, I think our house seemed probably chaotic. Um. So I think my, you know, my mom was probably more that emotional sport, but I I think it was hard for her. One, it still is. Um, And I just think there's four kids, right? You're trying to make sure they're all kind of being taken care of that way. I just don't think that it happened for any of us, really. Right. So in that moment, you're two, you're five you're seven and you're experiencing a very important life lesson for that time, which is that people are independable, that uh, when you need someone to be there for you, they're not going to be there. They They might be there physically, but they're not there emotionally, which is what you really, really need. And so you develop this, this schema, this maladaptive schema that says, um, I've learned from the world that when I have a need inside of me for emotional support, when I have a need inside of me for real connection and to be seen and heard and validated, that need is not going to be met. And that's not a pleasant lesson to learn, but that's, I'm definitely learning that lesson. Mm -hmm. 
So as you go into adulthood, you retain that schema. People are independable. They're not going to be there for me. When I have an emotional need, people aren't going to be there for me. They're not going to notice. They're not going to care. Uh, is this all true for you or, or is it not? Yes. True? Yeah. And then, yes, and then that creates problems because obviously that perspective is very distressing to us of just like, wow, it's pretty demoralizing and depressing to think about. But also when we're, uh, when we have needs, you're 25 and you have an emotional need, it's like, well, I can't really reach out to other people because they're not going to be there for me. And that need goes unmet chronic. I feel like you're talking about my life. <laughs> <laughs> how, how was that for you? Yeah. So I learned, you know, I think pretty early on, probably like eight, nine, ten, to just not express emotion. Um, you know, especially any, you know, sadness or, you know, fear, anxiety. And so I, I learned very early to just hide it and, and not, yeah, right. Not talk to anybody, not reach out. I mean, I don't think anybody in my family knew how I felt inside, um, during that time. Right. Cause there's yeah, an added, yeah. there was an added element of, not only were they not there for you, but they would actually ridicule you. And so right. expressing your emotions was, all, was not only futile, but it was also opening yourself up for harm. It was like a trigger for harm to happen. Yes. So it's like, not only can I not depend on other people, but if I even express myself at all, uh, bad things are going to happen to me. So it's that double whammy there. Right. So yeah, then going into adulthood, I just, you know, it was rare. I had good friends here and there. And I have one friend from college. She's still my best friend. Um, you know, a couple romantic relationships before I was married, but, um, you know, I, I think I avoided a lot of just really expressing at any time how I felt. And I still do that. Does it feel lonely? Yes. What's that? Yes. Um, I think just because I'm the only one in my head and I'm the only one that I know how I feel. And I mean, I, I even have a hard time talking about it in therapy. I mean, I talk about being lonely, but you know, it's, uh, it's not something that I like talking about. Well, because of the schema that says, what are you doing? You're opening yourself up for harm. Um, and so I commend you for being in therapy and on being on the podcast here to, you know, really extend past that schema and express yourself, which is, you know, very healthy to do. Yeah. I've surprised myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with the maladaptive coping, so you're 25, you're 35, you're 42, uh, what sort of maladaptive coping? Cause remember we have the, the surrender avoidance and overcompensation, right? Uh, avoidance. Okay. How does that manifest? Um, I think I just don't, um, you know, I'm afraid that if I do open up or talk to people, right, that they're, it's going to scare them off or, you know, so I just don't, I just don't really share. I mean, people get to know me and I think generally like me, but it's, you know, I don't, I don't really have very many deep relationships. Okay. 
Has anyone ever complained about that? Yeah. Yeah. My sister. <laughs> what does she do? What does she say? She just want, you know, she just wants us to be closer. Now we're very different personalities, but, um, you know, I just told her, I finally just told her it's just hard for me, you know? Right. So just using that as an example, and I don't know, you know, maybe your sister's a jerk face and you don't want to be friends with her, but, <laughs> but the, the, um, uh, the self-sabotage there is that of course, deep down out of anybody, you would be the person who would crave closeness, uh, with people right. and would have a tremendous need to express yourself and be heard and seen and have people even pursue you to have people be like, Hey, you know, I'm kind of chasing you. And, um, I, I really want to have a deeper, closer relationship with you. So of course you would want that. But the self-sabotage comes in because the, the uh, maladaptive coping style that you developed habitually in response to the schema that people are independable kicks in and prevents you from being close to people. And even when people are being cool and they're being explicit in their, you know, uh, trying to be close to you and trying to have a deeper relationship with you, which would likely involve some sort of emotional support and validation to you, you're maladaptive schema and the maladaptive coping and the mode that you get into of just like, ah, I'll just, you know, I'm just over here and I'm, I don't want to bother anyone with my emotions and I just don't express myself and it doesn't feel comfortable to, to express myself. I'm just going to stay over here. But what that does is you shoot yourself in the foot because it pushes people away. Right. Um, so uh, that happened with your sister as it happened with other people too. Um. Not really where I've actually like communicated that to people. Um, I think the people that know me the best just know that's me and they either accept it or they don't. Um, like my husband, I mean, I, you know, we don't have those deep, deep conversations. Um, but, you know, I'm not afraid that he's going to leave me, but I, you know, it's just not anything we've ever, I mean, we've been together for, I don't know, 13, 14 years. So, um, I don't, I, I don't know. It, I just, it's just something I don't do. It's just really strange. Yeah. What does it feel like as you are you know, either pressured or, um, you have a notion of expressing yourself to emotionally to other people? What is, what does it feel like? Well, therapy was, I gotta tell you what, the hardest thing I've ever walked into. Um, and I started because I was having severe anxiety. Well, probably like 90% of the people that go to therapy initially. Um, it took me a good five, six months really, um, to start to really, I think, do any work. Um, and I just told him, I said, I don't trust you <laughs> at all. You know, knowledge is power and I'm just, don't want to get hurt. So I recognize that, but it, it is very difficult. Well, good for you that you're able to reach out in that way. I mean, you could have just stopped going to therapy, but instead you, you took a chance. How, how did you right. get the um, know-how or strength or resolve to do that? Uh, I think he saw that and right away. Um, and so it was just very, like, easy me into it. Um, and 
you know, just developing that rapport, you know, in that room for an hour and, um, and helping me with what I was struggling with at that time, which was the anxiety. So that's just built that relationship. Um, and just help me realize that this is somebody I can talk to. Do you surrender to this schema as well by selecting people who are emotionally distant? No, not at all. In fact, I feel like I absorb people that have problems and they tend to unload on me. Um, and it's almost, I think, a way for me not to have to share my stuff. Yeah. So, I yeah, I, I tend to attract that more. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. So to heal from this, um, it, so, it, you know, the scheme is developed because a need wasn't met and the maladaptive coping style, uh, developed because of the schema. And so we don't want to just say to someone, well, open up, you know, you got to get over right. that and stop, stop, you know, stop being closed off because that's not, that doesn't address the core of the issue. The core of the issue is, is well, what need was it that wasn't met originally and how can I meet it uh, in my current life having sort of conscious knowledge of the process? So you, as everyone else does, has a need for um, nurturance and acceptance and closeness. And the schema developed because you didn't have it and the maladaptive coping of avoiding developed because of the schema, which continues to um, uh, eliminate chances for you actually to get that need met. How are you adaptively going back to the core of the matter and meeting your needs for closeness, for other people to nurture you, for other people to notice your emotional state? What are you doing? Currently nothing. Um, well, you're in therapy. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're talking and, on this podcast, I just want to point that out. I mean, yeah, th- yeah, are- yeah. No, so this is you know this was a new um, new topic for me. I mean, I've listened to your podcast a lot, so I, I've learned a lot. I read a lot, um, and so I knew when I heard this, and with your attachment theory um, deep dive, like this was just more like just a deeper than the surface stuff that you sometimes have in therapy. And I knew that this was something I needed to address. So I think after this podcast, surely we'll talk to my therapist more as kind of, as I get more info and through this conversation. How, how can you, so say the next time you talk to your therapist, you're like, okay, I'm going to try to engineer this conversation so that, um, I get more nurturance, um, which will require me to be more vulnerable. How do you do that? I don't know. Um, You know, if I just bring that up, what you just said, I think, you know, he'd say, okay, well, let's come up with a, a plan, you know, who are some, and we've done this before. Who are some people I can reach out to? And like, you know, I'll make a list and, you know, for whatever reason, some of those people come in out of my life. So, you know, they're not there anymore. And so that would be some place to start. Good. Um, If I might 
suggest uh, another route as well. In addition would be um, start with the here and now, like, yeah. um, you know, you sit down and you're just like, okay, I'm going to be try. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on vulnerability in the here and now um, therapist of mine right now. I am feeling, and then you just sort of figure out how you're feeling and you're just like, I'm feeling a lot of feelings right now. One of which is I'm feeling shame. Like I'm feeling pre shame about expressing myself. I'm feeling uh, worried and nervous about expressing myself. I'm judging myself right now because I don't even really know how I feel right now. Um, I feel like I should have feelings. And, you know, whatever it is that is for you. Um, that's a good place to start because at any given moment you're having an emotional experience and um, to intellectualize and talk about like, well, I was feeling this yesterday. It's a whole other thing to just be like, I'm feeling this right now. And that's what you needed when you were two and five and seven and what you still need, which is, you know, someone to notice you now and, uh, and not hurt you for expressing that. That's the corrective experience that will, get your need met in the, in the short term, but in the long term will heal that um, wound so that you won't need the schema or the avoidance. Right. How does that, how does that feel too? Uh, it feels very uh, serious. <laughs> yeah. Um, heavy, but I mean, it, it all makes sense for sure. Yeah. Is it worrisome? Uh, you know, probably a little bit. Um, I've been with my current therapist for almost four years. So um, I don't really feel like there's a topic that we can't broach at this point. So, um, you know, and I think he'll be interested in this for sure. In therapy, do you express your emotions in the here and now? Or, I mean, have um, you? you know, I, it's sometimes I'm, I get mad at myself because like, I don't really, even though I feel like I should be crying, right? If I'm talking about something, I don't. And um, that's just really kind of a surreal thing. So one thing I've done personally to kind of correct that is when I do feel that need to cry, I just cry because, you know, I felt like I wasn't really allowed to do that when I was a child. So yeah, good for you. Is your, so your husband is emotionally expressive. Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, he's, I would say we're, we're pretty poor match because we don't, neither of us really talks about our emotions. Maybe that's a good match. I don't know. Um, right. yeah, I mean, it's a match. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it, there, there's pros and cons to it. The, the pro is, is that you get along pretty well because you're not challenging each other's, uh, coping styles right we don't uh, fight really at all I right mean, the con is is that you you're you're both chronically not getting your needs met and yeah. not really alerting other people to what needs you need the other person to meet right um so i'm guessing he you know is he in therapy no does he have uh, he, he has come with me a couple times but no he's not does he acknowledge that he has this issue too? 
Uh, I doubt it. You know, he's, he's, he's older than I am. So he's just your traditional white male. Right. I mean, there's, you know, you don't talk about that stuff. Well, maybe as you do it, he'll be inspired to to do the same. I've certainly seen that happen. before. Yeah. Okay. So what's another schema that popped out to you among the 18? Um, what the second one. Okay. So schema people call it mistrust abuse. Um, I'm sort of reframing it as people are harmful emotionally or physically. So because we have a need when we're growing up for stability and safety, we, um, and, and we, but we experience, um, miss, um, treatments or abuse or some kind of thing like that. We develop the schema. It's like, Oh, I get it. People are harmful, you know, like human beings aren't safe. They are, they harm me and I need to remember that. And then, cause that'll help me to sort of be wary around people. And then, um, as we get older, we develop these coping styles of just like, well, um, how do I deal with the fact that I have this ongoing belief that people are harmful? Um, is this all ringing true for you? Yes. So the statements of, uh, that I've reframed in my model here, and tell me if you agree with any of these. Okay. I, I often feel that I have to protect myself from others because they are likely to hurt me. Yes. It's only a matter of time before someone betrays me. Mm, no. Yeah, I'm thinking I might break this into two different types too. There's like the um, non, non-betrayal type and the betrayal type. Um, most people are selfish or fake and only think about themselves. Yes. It's hard for me to trust others. Yes. I sometimes will hurt others before they can hurt me. No. I think that's another third type is the um, preemptive harmful type. Um, I need solid proof before I can trust someone. I would say no, but I don't really trust many people. So right. it's not like I test. I mean, test them. Well, not test, but like proof. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, like listening to the podcast over the span of time you have, does it make it so that you feel like you can trust me with telling me all these things? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's kind of like, well, I guess I had to have proof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I sometimes test others to make sure they can be trusted. Mm, no. Yeah. I feel like that's another type. I feel like there's probably. Some, I don't even know what that means. Like, well, so what people will do like sometimes give them information. Well, what they'll do is they'll like a, a classic test of this sort of thing is to become angry with like, say you wanted to test your husband or something and you become angry at them. You become like um, frustrated and outward and expressive. Like, you know, I can't believe what a jerk you are all the time. And the test is, well, I'm going to sort of push him to get frustrated with me. And I hope that he passes the test by um, 
not freaking out and by not rejecting me and not betraying me in the process. But I suspect he's actually going to betray me. He's going to say, I never loved you to begin with. I hate okay. you. You know, it's like, oh, I see. You know, beneath that veil of politeness is are those feelings. Now I know that they're there. And of course, the shooting yourself in the foot with that type is by testing people, you can make them hate you, you know? Uh, so, um, so that's what that means. Okay. So you, you basically have like the, the non-testing, non-preemptive, non-betrayal type of mistrust. Um, meaning that you believe you agree with statements like I often feel I have to protect myself from other people. Um, most people are selfish and fake. It's hard for me to trust other people. Um, so what's that like for you? Uh, I think this ties a lot back to the first one. Um, you know, just being afraid that um, if I do open up, right, that people will hurt me. And so, um, you know, and it may go back to like friendships growing up. I was, I was shy. I was hard to, uh, it was hard for me to, you know, to make friends and, um, you know, I think a lot of times I would get hurt by them. So, yeah, what sort of, um, you know, experiences did you go through chronically that would cause you to develop the natural, um, you know, uh, sort of schema that people are harmful to you? What, what sort of experiences did you go through? Um, I, you know, I think a lot of it was from like grade school. So, you know, just not being outgoing. And so then just not feeling like, you know, even when I did might find a friend, which would happen occasionally, then like, you know, a couple of the popular kids would like, oh, well, you know, then they would t- like take that friend away. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds awful. Yeah, that happened a couple times. So, um, you know, so it was just hard for me to trust, like, oh, well, are they really my friend or not? Right. Okay. So due to that and maybe other experiences, you develop this belief because it's true for you back then that other people can't be trusted. And, you know, not only can these popular kids not be trusted because they have malicious, harmful, malignant thoughts about my life, you know, motivations to harm my life somehow. But also my friends are willing to just up and leave me, you know, for a popular kid. Right. Um, And although we had a friendship and I thought we had each other's backs, I I guess we didn't. I need to really remind myself that my need for friendship, my need for connection um, is not going to be met because people don't have the ability to give that to me. I just need to remember that people are harmful. And then you develop this uh, coping style of that uh, with his surrender avoidance compensation, which, which one did you engage in? Um, number two. So avoidance. Avoidant. Yeah. Yes. So similar to the other schema of just like yeah. avoiding being vulnerable, av- avoiding relationships. Right. Avoiding depending on other people. Uh, yeah, I think I avoided depending on other people very early. 
Right. So, yeah. And so that, as an adult, shoots oneself in the foot because uh, you still have a need for dependency, you have a need for nurturance, you have a need for connection, you a need for, you know, um, ongoing loyalty and, and attachment. And the schema uh, developed out of, you know, a real situation necessitates the uh, coping style of avoiding, which... Um, can, you know, perpetuates the um, the lifestyle that you don't get any of your needs met in that area. Um, so, uh, I- am I describing that right? Yes. Okay. So, what's another schema that jumped out at you? Uh, well, we've talked about touched uh, briefly on this one: the emotional deprivation. So, because I wasn't close to people. Um, and I probably didn't get enough attention as a young child. You know, I just d- didn't feel, I don't feel, uh, you know, emotionally supportive. Isn't that, that's what this one is, right? Right. So there's a lot of overlap between the first three. You know, mm-hmm. people are independable. Uh, people can be harmful and people don't really care about me. Um, and we could sort of tease out the, distinctions because there are some distinctions but um, based on your experience you you have a good dose of those first three right and the way of coping with that in your adult life was to avoid relationships yes okay so what's another schema um okay it was the next one shame yes effectiveness i don't maybe we need to go through those questions yeah so Tell me if you agree with any of these. No one could love me once they saw the real me. No. There's something wrong with me. Mm. Yes. No matter how hard I try, no one will, will really love me for who I am. Yes. I'm not really lovable. No. I hide my true self from others for fear of them seeing my flaws. Yeah, sometimes. Some people like me, but that's only because they don't know the real me. No. People close to me often harshly criticize me. No. Sometimes I'm drawn to people who are critical. No. Okay. So I think you have like a a little bit of this one, that sounds like. Um, And I'm guessing the coping is to avoid relationships. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Um, Good guess. Do you want to talk about this one a little bit in terms of the the slice of this one that you have? Uh, I think part of it is, um, well, um, I haven't talked about this part yet, but, uh, you know, once I was in therapy, um, after about a year, I was diagnosed with bipolar 2. So I'm 39 years old, 40 years old you know, lived with it for 20 years probably and didn't know what was wrong with me. And so that's not an easy piece of information to share with people, especially when you don't like to get close. So I think that's the something's wrong with me. That's where that comes from. Interesting. Which I'm guessing you go through some depressive periods too. Yes. So my mood cycles are very predictable. Um, 
yeah, so I do have a stretch. It's usually like two or three months where, yeah, I'm, I'm very depressed. Um, I'm not suicidal, but it can be debilitating at times, certain days. Yeah, I'm sorry you go through that. That's awful. So, and it's funny, you were talking on the live podcast about, that was the most, I think, I really had heard people ask questions and you talked about hypomania and I experienced that too. And that's pretty amazing feeling. So it's kind of a, it's like sometimes I don't know which person's going to wake up in the morning. Um, just kind of strange, but um, cause the hypomania, I mean, you just feel great. You feel indestructible. You go do whatever you want. Um, you know, I, I'm an athlete. I compete in triathlons and, you know, but then there's times of the year where I just feel like I couldn't even walk on a treadmill for five minutes. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the tragedy of bipolar two in particular is that, uh, if you get treated for it medically, Mm-hmm. You, um, the hope is is that you get rid of the 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 downs, but also the ups, and the um, hypomania is what at least low grade because you can even you can have sort of higher end hypomania that can become really problematic, but sort of low grade hypomania, you feel you got energy, you have high yeah. esteem, you have a lot of ideas, you have you stay up later, you clean more, you get (laughs) done, you um, hire, you know, you start thinking, okay, I deserve a better job. I'm going to look for a better job. Um, You're funner. You laugh at more jokes. You're funnier. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, All those things. And it's like, so wait, that's a bad thing. And it's like, well, it's in the midst of a bad thing. It's, it's, um, it comes along with a lot of bad things. Right. It's, it's, I mean, I, Uh, It's been almost three years. So I've learned to manage most of my symptoms and, you know, just being aware is the first, you know, part to it. I think of what symptom you're like, I think I'm hypomanic right now. Yeah, I know it as soon as as I wake up in the morning. Um, And I've only had like one tiny bout of mania. And that was, that was scary. Um, But, you know, it was, it, it was only lasted a couple of days. Um, and you know, I was went and saw my psychiatrist right away after. So, um, but what yeah, happened what happened when you had your full blown? Um, I couldn't sleep even though I'm on medication to help me, help me sleep. Cause during hypomania, that's a problem. You can, you, you can get like three hours of sleep, but you feel like you slept all night, but it just triggers worse and worse. It just, you know, perpetuate. So I didn't sleep for two days. Um, I was just doing all this weird stuff around the house. Yeah. Like cleaning. And, um, it was, I, I, I tried to talk one of my friends into going with me to get a tattoo, which I don't have a tattoo and I don't know why I wanted one, but. Um, what sort of tattoo did you want? Like an infinity symbol on my arm, on my wrist. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just really, like strange behavior, not like outside of, you know, my regular personality. So when you wake up hypomanic, what does it feel like? Um, it feels great. You, like you, just you know, feel like, Ooh, I'm in a good mood. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I usually work out in the morning, and I pretty much work out 
every day when I'm hypomanic because, well, for one, it's, it tends to help, I think, um, tire you out a little bit, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah, so then I'll go to work and you feel like there isn't anything you can't do. Like, you know, everything makes sense. It's, it's really strange. Um, like like what, what kinds of things are, pop into your head where like, I could do that. I could do that. What well, I'm so my husband, and I run a business, I'm the CFO. And so I'm constantly solving different, you know, financial things. And, um, you know, there'll be to just like, when I'm not hypomanic, my brain definitely, I notice a difference on the speed it runs on. I can get so much done when I'm hypomanic at work. It's crazy. You know, um, like, you know, where I might be able to get half in another day of what I did. Right. So, yeah, it's Kanye West. I think he put something on his album that said, I hate being bipolar. It's awesome. Right. And that's perfect way to describe it. Yeah. Okay. So what other schemas do you want to talk about that? Um, okay. Uh, definitely. Okay. We went to four social isolation. I think this probably fits a little bit into what we've talked about already too. Don't you think? Well, let me know. So tell me if you agree. I don't belong. Yeah. I sometimes feel that way. I'm fundamentally different than others. No, I'm a loner. Yes. I feel alienated from others. Mm, No. I often feel like I'm the, I'm on the outside of groups. Yeah, sometimes. If I'm disap- if I disappeared tomorrow, no one would really notice. No. Yeah. So it sounds like you got a little bit of this one. And yeah. it makes sense given your ostracization from your friends when you were growing right. up. Um, what does it feel like to have this one of not fitting in? Um, well, it's strange because I think if, honestly, if you asked people, from the outside looking in, if they felt that way, if they thought that way about me, it's unlikely true. Um, but I, I just feel like sometimes like I'm just different. I don't know. Um, I don't fit. I don't feel like I fit that typical mold, mold, mold right. Of where I live. And, um, and I'm okay with being by myself and, but, you know, occasionally get together with friends. I mean, it just depends. I, it's hard to explain. Well, this one might be a little harder to analyze because it's not as clear of a signal for you as the other schemas. Right. But, you know, we all have a need for uh, closeness, but also we all have a need to kind of fit in or to feel a part of a group. Um, mm-hmm. If it's a group of two people or... 200 people, we, we all have that essential need. Um, we're, we're extremely social animals and it's not just relegated to our spouses and kids. We, we do have a need to be a part of some sort of congregation and um, that can be met a, a variety of ways. And when you're taught early in life that trying to get that need met leads to bad things for you, then you develop a schema of just like, well, I just need to admit I don't fit in. I'm not normal. I see groups happening outside of me, but um, I'm not going to 
things aren't going to go well if I try to find a group of people to, uh, you know, cohere with. Um, yeah, I think the, the, I was a, I was gifted athlete. So that was the one time in my life that I really felt, um, part of something. Um, I played basketball. I was a three sport athlete in high school, but, um, basketball was my main sport and that's kind of I felt like what got me out of the stuff I suffered through in grade school because I was very good and you know there's some popularity that comes with that um and notoriety right if you go to a smaller school and um and so I did develop a lot of friendships that way um and then I continued and I played uh, college basketball and same thing. And I think when that went away, um, that was difficult. That was a hard thing for me to deal with. Yeah. So, uh, were you point guard forward? I point guard. So you got some ball handling skills. Yeah. Um, what college you play for? Uh, Hope College. It's a small private school in Michigan. Cool. Um, so, uh, yeah, I always respect point guards. I played basketball too. I was a, a center or a forward and I, I so you could, were tall. I could never, yeah, I could never, um, uh, even approximate the, the skills that point guards had. It was always just like, you know, give me the ball. And if there's maybe like one or two dribbling kind of things, <laughs> fine. But if I have to like, even just dribbling down the basketball court was sort of hard for me. Um, and you know, I was easy pickings for people who wanted to steal the ball from me, but like point guards like me. Yeah. Sure. I used to, yeah. You seek those people out. Yeah. You see the gangly center trying to work his way down the, the court. And you're like, oh, okay. That's probably going to be mine. Um, so, uh, the way to look at this is that, you know, due to not only, um, being ostracized to emotionally in your family growing up, but also, by kids at school, um, yeah, the schema, but you still have this need. And so um, you actually, there were decisions you had to make to actually play team sports. You know, you could have uh, avoided that. You know, if your right. was strong enough or you made certain decisions, you could have been like, okay, you know, I feel like I want to play basketball and I feel like maybe I have some aptitude for it, but you know what? Um, that's a group <laughs> and I, I <laughs> avoid that because things are going to, you know, I'm going to, things are going to go badly for me there, but you push past that and you're like, no, you know, I, I want to play basketball or I want to be a part of a group or whatever it was that got you through that. You became a part of the group and they did accept you and you were recognized as a part of that group and you started to get that need met maybe for the first time in your life of, of yeah, you fit in. Um, you not only fit in, but you're, you're like an MVP You're you're very, you know, if you played college yeah. in high school, I'm guessing you, you were like MVP often or something. You know? Yeah. All, all area, you know, all league. So right. yeah, I mean in high school. Yeah. Yeah. You weren't just like on the bench cheering on everybody. No, no I, I was on varsity all four years. Yeah. Started. You're like the linchpin, yeah. you know, of, and point guards, um, are the linchpin, you know? So, um, so the uh, uh, so you start getting that need met, and that schema starts to erode because 
you start to actually learn that, wait, I guess I do fit in, you know, and, and I, I can trust groups and I'm, I'm not fundamentally different than other people, but you still have some of it. So then when mm-hmm. ends, now you have to go, now it's like you didn't have that sort of lifestyle or automatic group that you could fit in with. And then you just kind of went back to, oh, well, maybe I am a loner, <laughs> you know, because right. basketball, I don't really have a way to get in. And then the schema starts to kick in. And as groups approach you or as you sort of brush up against groups, the schema kicks in and you shoot yourself in the foot and you avoid uh, trying to push past it, you know, because regardless of schema, um, when we start to integrate with a group, there's always anxiety, you know, there's always like, well, am I going to fit in? I, feel, I don't really feel like I, you know, there's always a reason to avoid it. And so if you have the schema, then there's a much bigger reason to avoid it. it is this accurate for you? Yeah. Um, yeah. I just don't know where I would like what kind of setting in my present day life, you know, how would that fit in? I mean, I played after college, uh, you know, open gyms and some leagues and stuff, but you know, eventually you get too old and you know, can't get hurt because you take too long to recover. But, um, you know, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what, you know, where a draw would be for me at this point. Yeah. Well, and it's a common issue for a lot of people, you know, when you start having kids and you got a job, it's, it's, um, it's hard. So what's another schema that stuck out for you? Okay. So the next few were all for sure, I think knows. So the impaired autonomy and performance. Okay. So, uh, so you feel confident you have self-esteem that you're good at things. Yeah. I mean, we were left to our own devices a lot, so we had to figure stuff out. Um, and I, I still feel that way. You know, if I don't, if some people use YouTube, usually I feel like I can just do it on my own. So, um, but yeah, I don't, none of those six, seven, eight, nine, we're all def- definitely knows. And you were enmeshed with your family. So you didn't have that one. Um, no, yeah, that, that was a no. Okay. So number 10, I thought that was a weird one actually. Yeah. It will be weird for someone like you (laughs) given your, given your background. And that's one of the things that I actually do with my students. I have been for the past 20 plus years is, um, when I teach enmeshment versus, uh, disengagement, you grew up in a, what we would call a disengaged family. Um, it's hard to, uh, relate across the boundary. So if you, so what I do is I have disengaged uh, people with, from disengaged family of origin. They will stand up and describe it. And I say, okay, and mesh people really listen to this because it won't sound, it'll sound weird to you and it'll sound, it'll almost sound attractive to you, but you need to um, hear the downside of it. Okay. Now and mesh people stand up, describe what it's like to come from an enmeshed family to the disengaged people it might sound good to you because it's like, Oh, it sounds like you guys are really close. That's always what I wanted. But you know, it's not actual closeness that you're hearing. It's, uh, you know, closeness by shame or guilt or, um, you know, yeah. I have a friend that has that. I mean, every conversation is about her family and we all live in different States. So (laughs) (laughs) that, that just tells you one thing. 
So number 10 is the entitlement. I, I get what I want schema. Do you have this? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So let's read through these. I have a lot of trouble accepting no for an answer. Yes. I usually get irritable if I don't get what I want. Yes. I feel like I shouldn't have to follow many of the social rules that other people have to follow. Uh, no. I excessively hate it when people prevent me from doing what I want to do. Yes. I often break silly rules that other people adhere to. No. So I think there's different types here. So types, I think there's like, like the a rule follower. Yeah. Uh, the, the non, the anti rule type, which is sort of a, like a psychopathy and, uh, and the, the rule the type, I guess, or the regular type. Um, regular type. I don't know if regular makes sense, but anyway. Um, okay, so uh, where do you think this came from? Why I think you- I'm just stubborn sometimes. So, okay, well, that's, so that's, the, that's the first thought we often have. It's like, well, yeah. I'm just a loner. Or, well, I just don't open up to people. Or I'm just not very emotionally expressive, but, um, and that's possible, but that's the schema kicking in. That's the schema saying, um, well, this is just who I am. This is just the way people are. Mm -hmm. I'm stubborn and I like to get what I want. The, um, another way of looking at it is when you were young, you had a need for, um, limits. You had a need for, understanding where you begin and other people begin where you end and other people begin. You had, you had a need for um, cooperation, you know, learning how to cooperate. And, uh, and I'm just, you know, speculating here. So, you know, uh, let me know if any of this is true or not. And as you're growing up, you're just generally left to your own devices. You're not, paid enough attention to there's there's not a lot of you know maybe as you were trying to um negotiate with your siblings your parents were like well work it out on your own did did they do that oh yeah yeah that was i mean for the most part um like i always tell my kids this is i think this is funny now but at the time maybe other people would have thought it was weird my mom so she was home with us in the summer and we literally like as soon as we got up, we had to go outside and we were only allowed to come in to go to the bathroom or eat lunch and then dinner, then we could come inside. So we were just outside. I mean, all of us, you know, I mean, it's one thing to be hands off, but another thing to be just like actively rejecting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I remember, I remember being yelled at for coming in, you know, yeah, that's pretty awful. Um, now, you know, for me, I guess in some way that was great, right? We got to go out. We were just on our bikes and playing with neighbor kids and doing, doing building forts. I mean, so, you yeah, know, but in you some ways. Done that. You still could have done that without your mom's actively saying you can't <laughs> house. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, my, it's funny. Know. She does that to my kids, like. When she'll come over and watch them sometimes and my kids will be like uh this is my house not your house i can go yeah, in there if i want they have to leave 
Well, she'll be, she'll be outside with them. What we have a swimming pool. And so she'll come over to watch them and they'll want to go in the house and she'll tell them they can't and they, but they'll stand up to her. I mean, and they just say, well, this is my house. Like, you can't tell me I can't go in there. I mean, that's coming from like a seven year old. It's kind of this funny. Is weird. Like, why can't I go in my house? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. They're, they're just like, what? You know? <laughs> okay. So as a result of that, um, you know, lack of guidance and lack of, um, help with negotiation, you end up having to kind of fend for yourself and, uh, uh, you gravitated towards the style. Maybe your other siblings did too. It was just like, look, unless you assert yourself and kind of get irritable when your boundaries are violated, then people are going to walk all over you and there's no other way. You can't negotiate. You can't really think, well, if we have a conversation here, we might be able to work out some kind of uh, deal where we both get what we want. I'm just going to have to put my foot down and be stubborn. And because, because uh, I get, I have to get what I want. Otherwise I'll, I'll never get what I want. And then you retain that into adulthood and you um, just continue to do that because again, our need, we have, we have a need to get our needs met, but we also have a need for, um, for understanding uh, our own uh, fairness or something, you know, uh, and uh, then it just becomes a part of your personality. I mean, that's the thing that, that schema uh, proposes is that this isn't a belief that you have, like I get what I want or um, I shouldn't have to accept no for an answer. You know, that's not a belief. It's a part of your personality. And that's why when I asked you, you know, what's this like? And you're just like, well, that's just who I am because it, it feels that way, you know, and right. it kind of is that way. But mm-hmm. The hope is, is that once you recognize the needs that were not met growing up and why that schema developed and why one develops the coping styles, then you can actually go around all that and say, okay, okay, what, what are the needs that I'm trying to meet here and how can I actually more directly meet them? But before we get to that, um, what are your, uh, do you surrender, avoid, or overcompensate with this one? Um... I don't know. Walk through those with me. Yeah. To surrender would be to bully other people, you know, to, no, I don't do that. Um, avoidance would be to avoid situations in which you're going to be average, um, or not sort of in control. Yeah. I'd say that. What's the third one? Uh, overcompensation is to um, excessively attend to other people's needs, you know, just like, No. Okay. Yeah, not that one. So, it, yeah, number two would be. Okay. Um, I'm also going to change the way where this is like, I must get what I want or else I'll never get what I want. What I want. Um, okay, so you will avoid situations in which you're not in control. Um, what does that look like? Uh, or in which that, you be average. Yeah. Um, that one probably less. So it's more the control, you know, I think control is the, is known usually. 
So anything unknown, unpredictable, that's hard for me. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it don't, that not being in control definitely is a trigger for anxiety for me. Right. And I think I'm, you know, I'm sort of expanding on this as you're describing it because, you know, this is essentially narcissism, entitlement, grandiosity, but it seems like um, what you're talking, I mean, are you grandiose at all? No, that, that, no, no. Um, I mean, there's some of that with bipolar. Um, right. But I can use it in a positive way. Um, you know, just being aware of how I'm feeling at that moment or for those stretch of days, you know, I know I'm not, no, I'm not one to brag. Um, so, so I think it's like, uh, the type that you have is, particular and not the grandiose type. That's interesting. Right. So the idea is, is like, okay, well, how can I get, how can I feel safe um, and comfortable in situations where I'm not in control? Um, uh, do you do anything along those lines? Probably avoid them mostly. Yeah. Um, if I am in a situation like that, I just don't engage Really? Well, to, to illuminate the sort of maladaptiveness of this, because um, on some level it's like, well, what's wrong with avoiding situations where you're out of control? I mean, you know, right. being control is, it's a good thing, right? Um, does this negatively impact your life at all? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. So either you're blind to it <laughs> possibly. <laughs> Or, yeah. or it just doesn't impact your life in a negative way. And, um, so therefore, um, you know, it's, it, it's not either, um, significant enough or you've managed to work around it somehow. Um, right. so the 11th one is I lack willpower. Do you have that one? Yeah. I answered no to, I think all of those. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing triathlons, I'm guessing that's true. Yeah. Uh, 12, I must please others. No, that one was a no too. Okay. Um, I'm guessing you don't have the self-sacrifice one. Um, I must feel... Uh, Let's walk through that one again. Okay. I feel guilty if I don't put others' needs before my own. Uh, Yeah. So I think sometimes being a mother, right? Some of these probably are more true, but not always. Right. Well, there's the regular parenting sacrifice, which um, has its pros and cons. But then there's like, um, I feel deep shame if I ever bring up my own needs. Mm. Yeah, I don't really bring up my own needs very often. Are you frequently pleasing other people? Mm. Like your husband or people, random people you know or? Sometimes, yeah. Okay. So what's that I don't like? Know. Well, um, I think I, I'm, you know, as I mentioned before, like people with that have some problems, you know, and like to open up tend to gravitate towards me. So I <clears throat> feel like a need, right, to help them um, to respond when they reach out to me, check up on them. Um, you know, it's, I don't do that with everybody. It'd just be the people that 
have reached out for me, you know, for that specific reason. Is that a problem for you? <laughs> uh, in some ways it's kind of, it's exhausting. I don't know how you do what you do. Um, I, it, it de- depletes my energy for sure. So you might be sitting there saying, okay, my friend is calling me and wants to talk about their troubles. Yeah. And I really just don't have the energy for it. But given my schema, I got to do it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's self-sacrifice for sure. Um, so what need do you think you're trying to meet by doing that? Um, so I think I put the number one. Which one was that? Nurturance. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what one you're talking about, but. Oh, so oh, the number afterwards. One right, right. So, so the number one need in the list was, right, love and attention. Surrender. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so in that uh, self-sacrifice, you know, don't let me put words in your mouth. You're trying to um, motivate other people to say, hey, while I'm giving to you, maybe you can give to me. Yeah. But that yeah. doesn't happen because you're, it, you're right. sacrificing so much and you're also not opening up to them. So Correct. Right. Interesting. Um, okay. Uh, I must fit in. Do you have that one? Approval seeking? Uh, no, that was no's. Okay. Uh, let's see. That's 14. 15. Where, where's 15? Uh, where's my system here? 15. Wait. Negativity. Uh, Yeah, bad things happen. Do you have that one? No, I don't think so. That was like the world's going to end, right? And you worry about, no. Um, Umberto has that one. Um, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Listen to that one. Uh, 16, I must control myself. Yes. So tell me if you agree with these ones. I worry about losing control of my actions. Yes. I sometimes worry that I might harm someone if I don't control my emotions. Yes, and by harm, it'd be emotional, like yelling, not physical. Right. Most of my emotions are not expressed openly, even positive emotions like affection or spontaneous joy. Yes. When I do express myself openly, I get embarrassed. Um, no, maybe sometimes. I find it hard to be spontaneous. Yes. However, I'm working on that. Good. Uh, (laughs) Some people think I'm a robot. No. Some people think I'm uptight. No. Okay. So I'm guessing this one emerged from that um, environment when you're growing up where you would express your emotions and you would not only be ignored, you would be criticized and shot down and punished for expressing yourself. Right. I think that's where it started. Um, and it's continued. Um, mostly I think with managing my bipolar symptoms, you know, the irritability that can come with that is pretty scary. Um, you know, you can go from zero to one or 10 on an anger scale, like in seconds. And so maybe part of what I learned growing up helps me with that management. But I am afraid, like, 
that, you know, there's going to be times where I can't control that, my outburst. So in your childhood years, you were being punished for having normal, regular uh, variation of expression. But as an adult or whenever your bipolar um, emerged, you were um, actually harming other people with your um, symptoms at times and, um, yeah. and sort of doubled down on that schema that I must control my emotions. Right. <clears throat> so do you surrender by maintaining a calm demeanor as best you can? Yes. Yes, definitely. Number one. Do you avoid by avoiding people or situations that involve having to be spontaneous or emotionally expressive? Uh, probably sometimes. I mean, I think when I, I have strong emotions, I just isolate okay. um, from my family, from everybody. Right. And they know, I mean, at so, this point. So we all have a need to be spontaneous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the chance that so spontaneous, like, yay, I love this so much or, Oh, I'm sad right now. Or I am legitimately angry right now. Um, we have a need for that. We have a need to get those out and have them be heard and have them be understood and cared for by other people. Um, in very rare circumstances, like if we, if we cataloged all of your emotional impulses, I would venture to say that one out of every 10,000 is a harmful bipolar reactivity moment. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, yeah. I so do. to shut down all of your emotion is right. throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so what are you doing to try to change that? You, know, you said you're trying to change it. Um, yeah, just I think when I don't want to socialize or do something, people just going out, engaging in conversation, having fun, um, doing more things with my kids um, that are, you know, just, hey, let's go do this, you know, and it's easier not to, right? Um, and then, you know, when I do feel a certain way, um, you know, telling people that, you know, I mean, my husband first, right? So if he thinks, hey, are you okay? Or I'll just say, no, I'm not feeling good. You know, I'm he in, he's we're at a point where he knows how I say it, what I say, what, what I mean by that. Um, so that that's come a long way because I just kind of kept it all in before. Oh, good for you. <clears throat> yeah. And it goes well. Yes. He, he understands like if I need my space, he'll give me my space, you know, if I need support. Um, yeah. It, it's not like a long conversation, but it's, you know, we kind of understand each other that way. That's great. Okay. So the last two schema here, uh, are you a perfectionist? Yeah. In some ways I am. Um, do you push yourself really hard to be perfect to your detriment? Um, I don't know. I, I probably have at different points in my life, um, like trying to be a good student. Uh, that was an expectation growing up and that was stressful. Um, 
I, and I was a good student, but still, if you, the expectation is to get all A's, right, you, that's tough. You can't make any mistakes. Right, right. So the, um, you know, again, don't let me put words in your mouth, but the, the spe- I guess the speculation I would have is that given the way your parents parented you, um, you, um, as any kid would, you had a need for attention, for approval, praise, and because you weren't getting it, in the sort of day-to-day, minute-by-minute activities, um, and because your parents did give praise for good grades, um, you, from an early age, said, okay, in order to get the little bit of love and attention that I need, um, or a little bit of the love and attention that I need, I, I need to be perfect in school because when I, when I am perfect in school, I actually do get a little bit of a morsel of love and attention and praise. And if I'm not perfect, then that little morsel will disappear, which scares the crap out of me because I depend on, on that little morsel. And then that, that was real. That schema, that personality trait was um, adaptive to that situation. You emerge into adulthood and you don't need it anymore, presumably. And you still retain that sort of, anxious perfectionism, um, even though you don't really know why, um, among things that don't really make a lot of sense. Like, why am I being perfect about um, organizing my living room when no one really cares? And why am I spending so much time or whatever it is that you're being perfectionistic about? Sound like my therapist. (laughs) (laughs) And the original need is stability, love, praise. Meanwhile you're being a perfectionist in your living room and, and you're creating conflict with your kids because they're not quite. Right. And it's not only not meeting that need for nurturance and closeness, but it's actually pushing people away, which compounds the need to be perfect, you know, because of that mm-hmm. personality trait. Is this accurate for you? Yeah. So definitely, I mean, going back to the growing up, my, <clears throat> my oldest brother, like I think in high school, he was about five years older than me. Um, he got like a C, you know, and I just remember the impact that had like on our family. And so the rest of us, so there's another brother, myself, and then my sister were like, I don't, I think we were just scared, right? To, for that, like that was horrible. And, you know, it's just, so that expectation, yeah, obviously carried over. And so I've done a lot better job of, I think, making sure everything is perfect. Like if we have people over or whatever, you know, I used to freak out about that. But um, I've learned to just let let that go um, because I understand like what you just said, nobody cares. <laughs> and my therapist has said that to me a couple of times. Well, good for you. And sounds like you're with a good therapist. The last schema here is punitiveness, which I'm rephrasing as we must all be held responsible for our mistakes and punished. Um, yeah, let's go through this one. Okay. We must all be held responsible for our mistakes and punished. Um, my past mistakes often pop into my head and then I feel bad. Yes. If I make a mistake, I deserve to be punished. 
Oh, you know, when I was younger, I probably felt that way, but I don't as an adult. Okay. People who make negligent mistakes should get punished in some way. Mm, maybe, yeah, sometimes. How does that manifest? Um, I, I just think people need to be responsible, you know? Which is true, but like, yeah. when is it excessive for you? I think when it hurts other people. Like, um, do you have an example of that? You know, um, using drugs or, um, you know, if you're, that harms families, um, you know, being abusive. Um, and I know that there's obviously deeper meaning to all of that, but I do feel like those people need some sort of help. Um, I guess that's not punishment, but it might be to them. Mm-hmm. Does this ever create any problems for you? Like, I'm just trying to think of how it would like, um, I guess more directly if say your husband were to like, you're the CFO. So I'm guessing yeah. he makes mistakes financially, you know, at times or, you know, is not as on the ball about things like that with your corporation. Um, or whatever. He makes some sort of mistake on the job that's negligent. And, you know, he mm-hmm. uh, forgets this thing or neglects to file a certain thing or something. And it's one thing to be like, oh my God, I can't believe you forgot that. Like, you you need to be more on the ball. That, that's one reaction. The punitive schema would motivate a thing like, um, I am going to emotionally punish you. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I need you to experience a consequence for what you did. You need to sort of um, pay a penance for you having done a shameful, terrible thing. Uh, you see the distinction there? I do. And I would say no then. Okay. Right. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with saying I want people to be held responsible. <laughs> it's not because yeah. the idea is, is like when we're, uh, when we grow up, and we grow up in a world where there's a lot of punitiveness where right. we're punished or people are sort of punishing themselves um, for, you know, making a mistake. Then we learn like, Oh, well that's how the world is. That's how to balance the scales is for people to be punished for what they've done, not for people to be responsible. I mean, that's a good schema. People should be responsible. Um, so is any of this, sort of schema resonating with you? Yeah. Like I think <clears throat> the way <clears throat> we grew up in the, you know, eighties, there was detention, right? Yeah. Well, they don't do that anymore. It's, I don't know. They don't have detention. So yeah, yeah if you did something wrong at school, <clears throat> you got in trouble. Right. And so, something that was annoying, like sitting in a room by yourself. Yeah. In the dark. Yeah. Um, put your head down. But again, you know, unless that belief system is creating kind of some sort of problem in your life, then it's no, yeah, the preference it, that you I, have for the way things should work, you know? Yeah, I don't think it, it does. Okay. All right. So we're at the end of that. Um, how was this uh, talking with you? It was great. Yeah. Enlightening and, you know, just uh, made my understanding on all of this that much more. Yeah. I mean, cause it sounds like you already had a pretty good understanding of it. 
Yeah, I, I, I do feel like I did, but you know, <clears throat> it's different doing it by yourself than actually having a conversation with yeah. somebody about it. For sure. I can, <clears throat> I understand why you wanted to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And hearing your account really does kind of flesh these things out for me and I'm sure the listeners. And I want to commend you again for going against all of your schemas <laughs> <laughs> and coming on the show, being spontaneous, being expressive, um, getting people to, you know, me one, but the listeners to pay attention to your, to you and your needs, to see you for who you are and to trust that you're not going to be ridiculed. You're not going to be abandoned on the playground. You're not going to be uh, criticized or um, told that you're wrong for having a need for having a feeling and that other people can be inspired and follow in your footsteps to stretch. You know, I can, I can tell that this isn't super comfortable for you. You don't seem uncomfortable, but, um, but I can also tell that, um, you know, this is at sort of at the edge of your, um, sort of normal life, right? Oh, very much so. Yeah. It's not a, a common thing for you to do this. And so, um, uh, I, I suspect if you continue to do this, um, you'll be, ex- you'll be as expressive as Umberto is. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be that expressive. <laughs> uh, well, any last words, um, other than, um, insulting Umberto, just joking. No, uh, no, but thank you for having me. And, um, I just, yeah, I have a lot to take in and it looks like I have some things to work on in my next therapy session. Yeah. Let me know how that goes. I will. Uh, I'm curious uh, to see how things go for you. Yeah. And on behalf of the listeners, again, just thanks so much for coming on. It's been um, enlightening and I'm sure positive. A lot of listeners out there are like, oh my God, I have that exact same thing. And I never really saw it that way. I thought it was just the way the world worked. I thought, I thought people didn't care, but wait, so that's, that's a schema. That's a distortion. Like, and now wait, I can, I can maybe start down a path um, to actually begin to trust other people the way Tara is modeling right now. Like that feels really good. And so, um, so thank you for that. You're welcome. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. And please take care of yourself and heal from your schemas because you deserve it. You really you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kirk. 